0: to the European Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host, Alan Feely, and I'm coming to you from Cork in the Republic of Ireland. And I'm joined today by four fantastic guests to run through the week's European football action. There's a lot to get through, so I'll waste no time. Um, first up is Connor Clancy, a debutante on the podcast, another Irish man based in Parma in Italy. Connor, how's it going over in Parma? I think it's pretty,
1: pretty hot you were saying before we started recording. Yeah, thankfully today it's it's dipped a little bit. I, I just feel like from the off, though, I need to declare a beef because I felt nice and welcomed on this, you know, a bit of a, a home welcome with the Irish people. But Jasmine was giving me some shade, serious shade, on Twitter earlier. So I'm coming at this from a position of nervousness and treading very carefully. That's typical of Jasmine, right?
0: <laughs> How are you, Jasmine? You're in Hessen, and what's your problem, O'Connor? Spill the
1: beans.
2: I, I just didn't know because the account got uns- suspended. Sorry for not taking yeah, that much interest.
1: Unbelievable! Really unbelievable. <laughs> That's how
0: relevant you are on Jasmine's time, uh, time feed. Uh, I'll tie- called timeline, Connor. Just, just let that sink in. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> John O'Sullivan, as always in Galway in Connemara. How's it going, John? All good.
3: All good. Now I'm very curious as to why Connor's uh, account was suspended, like a man of mystery, and I'm I'm intrigued. Uh, also yeah. in football stuff, but mainly Connor related questions
1: i'm as curious as you that twitter gave me some reason that didn't apply to me um so it was odd to say the least but i'm back anyway not the jasmine notice but yeah we're all good now we you sharing la liga highlights is something that normally gets people done pretty quickly no they said i was um operating like multiple accounts and fabricating interactions or something but i mean i've, I've i run my account and the the fourth italian football account so I didn't get it, and they didn't offer any more information when I asked for it. So who knows?
0: Bizarre, bizarre. And then finally, Alex Brotherton is in Manchester. How's it going, Alex?
4: Yeah, good. Thank you. Uh, pretty glad to 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 not be coming from a position of uh, of Twitter beef. Everything's quite calm and serene here in Manchester. So yeah, just uh, excited to to talk about all the European football that happened this weekend. So yeah, can't wait.
0: Fantastic.
4: Um, we'll begin
0: with the first significant game of the week, you could say. Uh, Borussia Dortmund lost 3-1 to Bayern Munich in the German Super Cup final. Jasmine, we kind of were speaking earlier in the week about this game and we kind of thought that it could be a good asset test where Dortmund are. Many have tipped them as serious title containers this season. It's not been a stellar week for them. And I know that, you know, as someone who, who holds Dortmund dear to their heart, that must have uh, hurt you so <laughs> Um, as well as losing that game to Bayern, they also uh, lost 2-1 to Freiburg. Uh, well, Bayern Munich went and beat cone 3 3-2 at the weekend. Quite a, a thrilling game there. Um, Serge Canarby with a brace. Uh, what did you make of this week for those two clubs and this game in particular? I mean, if it was an acid test for Dortmund, they didn't pass, did they?
2: No, not at all. I think... We've heard from quite a few voices, especially surrounding German football, that you know people had put them first to win the Bundesliga in their predictions. And I think, as one very highly touted voice of German football, Christoph Biermann put it, it "It's kind of same, same yet again when Dortmund faced Bayern. Um, they looked better, but." If you look at some former matches against Dortmund and Bayern, it's almost ever one-sided. So for it to be kind of 3-1 was quite an improvement. But for everything that has been lauded of Dortmund of late and them getting their man, them having Erling Haaland, we thought it could be the first major upset (laughs) Upset. Well, some people actually had Dortmund as favourites. They were at home. They were in front of the home crowd. Um, but it was basically in the same viewing. They, even though they had less possession throughout the match, they couldn't really capitalize on the chances that they had. Um, and you know how buying can make that very punishing for you. It, it was it from what we saw. From Upper in the first Bayern game against um Borussia Mönchengladbach, and Glabach, where he looked a bit shaky against Marcus Turam and the pace and speed of Marcus Turam, it was completely different. A completely different Upper facing Erling Haaland. Anytime Haaland tried to break, because that's the only fan Dortmund have, he was there. Absolutely. Every time he tried to take a step away, he was there completely. Great tackles, great blockage. Just any time that he, he Erling Haaland even had a sniff of the ball, Upper Mekano was there coming across him. And that's what really made the difference. People were kind of worried with what they'd seen in, in, with Bayern Munich against München Gladbach on the Saturday before. Or was it Friday? Friday before, sorry. And it, Bayern Munich just stepped up a notch. And it's funny because this is a glorified pre-season, just like the charity shield is in English football. And it was only because it was after the season started, it felt a bit more fiery. It felt a bit more like something. So for Bayern to then also just put water on the flames of Dortmund bear just felt like oh no is this the same Dortmund and obviously as you said they lost 2-1 against Freiburg and a result we saw under Edin Terzic last season away at Freiburg but it's everything that I've said which is the weaknesses of Marco Rosa the weaknesses of Dortmund managers before them and um, it's just you know, the same that we've always seen. They had 69% of possession throughout the game. They had 19 goal attempts, but only three on target. With a, the, with um, Haaland and newsboy Marlin, you expect that, you know, you get more than three on target. Um, Frobeck just let them have the ball and counted better than Dortmund themselves. So with the kind of expectations of Dortmunds are like, It's just a bit more realistic, I would say, because anyone who's watched a Marco Rosa team has pretty much said, look, this is what he does. Don't be surprised. So we'll see if these bad results go any longer because they don't have the easiest games in their starting weeks. Freiburg is probably one of the easier ones. They're at home to Hoffenheim, who are unbeaten and have only conceded two goals.
0: So we'll see. Speaking of Bayern, I mean, like, have you noticed any influence on um, the behalf of Julian Eggsman, the team so far, and the way he's set up? And also, what kind of effect do you think this kind of uh, cloud of uncertainty above Robert Lewandowski's head um, is going to have on the team? I mean, I know you don't really believe the rumours that were circulating during the week that he's asked to leave this summer. You think it could be next summer if he's going to leave it all? Um, like, what, what kind of state are Bayern in? I mean, are they developing well under Nagelsmann? Is his influence telling? And what exactly do you make of the Lewandowski situation?
2: Um, I wouldn't give the Lewandowski situation any more thought. It was a really odd rumor that suddenly popped up from British sources and nothing from Germany. Everyone from Germany who even went with the story had quoted. Um, Sky Sports England. So I think it's very weird. He's not moving this summer, so we can just put a dampener on that. And actually, um, Bayern Munich are in a great place under Nagelsmann right now. They've they looked a bit shaky at times versus Kuhn. Um, I'm not sure exactly why there was a weird three minutes in the second half where Cohn just scored with the two shots on target um to make it two-two. But, you know, that Serge Gnabry came in clutch, and that was that. But um, if you look at the underlying numbers, Bayern greatly surpassed Kone again. They are still lacking a little bit defensively at times, but I think they're still trying to find their feet under Nagelsmann. He's still giving uh, Lirotane loads of chances which hasn't really pulled off yet so we might see more of Musiala because when he came on against Cone he completely destroyed them there was a little bit of defensive weakness on that his side but everything that can be fixed with a little bit of coaching um but yeah they're in a really good place they're obviously unbeaten and also We're seeing new contracts for Kimmich, who's signed for 2025, who was a bit of a doubt to sign. We're probably going to see the same for uh, Goretzka as well. And those were the two really shaky ones. Um, Obviously, Lewandowski's contract runs until 2023. And, you know, there's a really good striker in the league whose contract contract release clause comes in next season, so they could easily replace Lewandowski if they wanted.
0: Yeah, that would be typical of Bayern when they're picking from uh, from Dortmund and that kind of almost I don't know human centipede like fashion that the uh, the Bundesliga <laughs> seems to have. Um, but yeah, we're speaking about a new manager settling into a massive club in Italy, in the capital city of Rome. There's not just one but two managers settling into their new clubs: Maurizio Sarri at Lazio and Jose Mourinho at Roma. Of course, uh, Mourinho got his uh, the. His era, I Roma off to a good start. They beat Fiorentina 3 1 at the weekend. Um, Tammy Abraham very much involved in that game. And Lazio got their Maurizio Saro era off to a 3 1 victory as well uh, against Empoli. Um, Why did you make of this, Connor? Both games? Is the influence telling on both teams already? Is there optimism? in the eternal city that these two kind of quite high-profile country, coaches can deliver success to their respective clubs?
1: I think there's definitely optimism, particularly in the, in the case of Mourinho at Roma. But above all, it's just excitement, excitement of the unknown. Because, I mean, in Italy, we know what Mourinho's like. We've not seen him here firsthand for about 10 years, but Italy has remained kind of obsessed with him, even when he's not been here because of what he did with Milan, or with Inter, rather winning the only treble in Italian football history so he's still held in really really high regard and one thing that we we seem certain of that that he's going to bring to this Roma team is fieriness and I mean in preseason they were they were involved in I think two mass brawls and their first game of the season uh, against Fiorentina both teams had a player sent off and there were four goals in all so it does look like Mourinho is going to bring that excitement to Roma and I'm not necessarily sure that it's a bad thing for them one thing that has always been leveled at Roma I mean from back as far as when there was Rudy Garcia, Luciano Spalletti all of these coaches was that they could at times be a little bit spineless you know a little bit weak um, I don't mean to sound like AFTV but you know what I mean That they, they had this reputation of of folding and not like coming together as a group and I think with Mourinho they they will do that initially at least who, who knows what the long-term impacts will be and then uh, across the city at, at Lazio Sarri we, we know what he's going to do he's going to have that Lazio team playing a really really nice brand of football this is probably the closest squad to the Napoli squad that he has had since he left Napoli I mean the Chelsea thing was was odd and then Juventus was even odder but this, this Lazio team do appear built to give him what he wants. I mean, up front, you've got Ciara Immobile, who, who scored 36 goals, not last season, but the year before. And before that, 36 goals was a Serie A record and it was broken by Gonzalo Higuain under Sari. So it does look like he's going to be able to get Immobile firing again. Sergei Milinkovic-Savic is a perfect Maurizio Sarri midfielder. You've got players like Manuel Lazzari at wing back as well. And They've brought in El Cedisai as well. So you would think that Lazio will do well. Roma too, although Mourinho can be a little bit more unpredictable, I suppose. But with, with Serie A this season, I mean, sky's the limit for both of these sides because there's so much unknown at the top of the table that who knows, come May, we might have a... a battle in the capital for the title or they could be competing for the last Euro- Europa League spot it, it's it's a big mystery and it's it's very very fun
0: I'll go to you in a 2nd on sorry John because I know you're a big fan of the uh the chain smoking tactician but just first on on Roma Connor like what would constitute a good season for them under Mourinho like he obviously isn't you know speaking as forthrightly as he did back in the day when he'd rock in claiming he was a special one, like he's been quite realistic in his press conferences, talking more about, you know, process driven development, that kind of thing, focusing more on performances. And then the results that come with that, as opposed to claiming he's going to bring titles to the club. Um, although he definitely still has a bit of his spikiness left in him. But what, what, it seems very open in Italy, like you said, like I mean, I know there's the seven sisters mm. um, historically were, you know, the big seven, you could say. Like, it really does seem to be an open title race this season. We'll talk more about, you know, Napoli and, and Juventus and, of course, Inter later on. But just what's the expectation in the capital city, in Rome, from these two clubs? I mean, with Roma especially,
1: what's, what do they want this season? What do they expect will happen? I think it's really difficult to judge, but the the ceiling of what's possible is, is limitless. I mean, the Scudetto is not an impossibility, but the bar of what is... A minimum expectation is quite low so there's a lot of room for him to maneuver there and I think if if Roma missed out on the Champions League finished fifth or sixth but were competitive throughout the season I don't think that will be the end of the world but Roma is one of if not the most demanding and difficult jobs in Italian football so you never quite know what their fans are going to to decide midway through a season because it's Mourinho I, I do think that they will take narrowly missing out on the Champions League if there are signs of progress there, and if there is something to get them excited. Lazio, I, I think it's probably much of the same, but the expectations are probably a little bit less. Um, but yeah, Mourinho, I, I would be I would be hopeful that I've not predicted them to finish in the top four, but. Every time I think about it, my opinion kind of changes. But yeah, I think that a competitive Champions League push would be accepted for this season, at least. Absolutely. Uh,
0: John, have you watched much Lazio so far this season? I know you're a big fan of Sarri. He got a raw deal of Chelsea and, and Juve. Um, do you have high hopes for how this Lazio team will set up?
3: Yeah, I think um, he's made signings really that will fit his philosophy so far. I think Felipe Anderson is a good get for them. Uh, in fact, his best football probably of his career was at Lazio before he went to West Ham and then to Porto. So I think he could make a good impression there. I think Pedro, uh, controversially, because he moved from Roma, although it was a Bosman, so he didn't technically come from Roma. There was no negotiations between the clubs. I think he'd be a good signing. I think he could maybe fit that Callahan mould from uh, from Napoli, where he'll kind of play on the right-hand side but come in come in as kind of an additional forward. So that should be exciting. And I think that'll also add kind of a, a layer of intrigue to the to the Rome derby, which I expect to be very exciting because I could easily see Mourinho being snarky about uh, Sari being one of those poets that he likes to call one of those kind of people who is uh, very dogmatic in their adherence to attacking football. And I can imagine Mourinho making a big deal about that. I also, uh, I also got to watch, uh, to watch Roma last night, and I was very impressed with Tommy Abraham, but in a way that you wouldn't really associate with him. You know, the narrative around Abraham is he is like, you know, he's your very old school, meat and two veg number nine. He'll get on the end of things, but he mightn't necessarily create things. Well, you know, he had a very big hand in uh, two of Roma's three goals. He got an assist for Mkhitaryan after a really elongated uh, VAR check, and then he had a big role to play in Veratu in Baratou's first goal so it's really interesting to see how he'll adapt in Italy but like as debuts go I think he did really well and I'm, I'm sure the goals will come so that will just make uh the top four races as Connor mentioned just so interesting in Serie A and I think really out of the top five leagues it'll be the most interesting this season I can really really struggling to pick a winner but not only that to also pick uh a, a, at top four um so yeah I'm really looking forward to it and it was a good opening weekend also with Juventus dropping points but also uh kind of thinking they got three points with a late Ronaldo goal ruled out so there was so much entertainment in only the first game week
0: yeah absolutely and um, you mentioned Mourinho's previous jibes about ports and artists and that kind of thing and how football is it made for them, really. I mean, one man who definitely would be considered a poet and artist of football and is, of course, a long-term rival of Mourinho's is a guy who apparently was inspired watching fleets of geese uh, over the summer in, in terms of redeveloping his Manchester City midfield, Pep Guardiola. Um, they beat North City 5-0 at the weekend. Absolutely stunning performance. Jack Realish got his, uh, his maiden goal for his new club. Uh, wasn't exactly the finish of a hundred million pound player, you could say, but uh, a good goal nonetheless, and it's got him off the mark. Um, what, what do you make of his introduction into this Man City team, Alex? I mean, where do you think he's going to be played? Is he, is he going to be at number eight, or is he going to be a, a wide forward like he has been for for Aston Villa, and then very for very
4: briefly for the England national team? Yeah, it's a good question. Um... So we, we saw against Spurs in his in his Premier League debut for City that he played as a number eight. Uh, Raheem Sterling started on the on the left wing, and then obviously at Norwich against Norwich on Saturday he was uh, starting as a left forward. I personally think it will be the number eight role that he'll take up more often for City. I think he's more effective there. He's, he said himself that he prefers playing that position, and I think ultimately that ultimately that's where Pep uh, has. That's what he's signing for is to play there. I think we will probably see Sterling play more on the on the left wing going forward. But yeah, it's uh he's not he's not set the world alight, but he's definitely shown exactly why City wanted wanted to bring him in. Like in the first I think it was the first five or ten minutes against Spurs in the in the in the defeat last week. He um he made a surging run into the box. He was direct. He was doing all the things that City fans in the past have perhaps slightly criticized the team for. They they pass a lot. He likes to control the game by keeping the ball, but perhaps it could be a bit more direct occasionally. Uh, and I think that is one thing that Grealish really does bring. He like he runs at his man. We've all we've all seen the stats about how many fouls he draws and how many how many dribbles he makes into the box. And he was doing that uh, on Saturday as well against Norwich. He was he was positive going forward, making things happen. And I think one of the most enjoyable things about his game is that he is just a player that excites. Like he gets the fans. Gets the fans off their seats, and obviously it was Saturday. Was the first time the Etihad has uh, has been full for eighteen months. Insert Etihad capacity jokes there. Um Yeah, it was a it was a brilliant performance. Well, not brilliant, but it was it was good. It was uh, it was really encouraging. I think he's going to have no uh, no issues at all fitting into this city team. I think is is that player where he's he's shown what he can do both for Villa and and for England, of course, at the Euros. But I think he his game will improve even more. When he's got the the quality of players around him at sea, and and a coaching Pep Guardiola who has a, a proven track record of improving young players, particularly in their second season. So if we if we don't perhaps see see Grealish is absolutely best this year, I am more than certain that that we will see it next year. So yeah, I think it was it was a good performance for him for sure. Yeah,
0: I guess I wonder if the uh, Man United fan who had Miss Grealish sixty nine print in the back of her shirt has has gotten rid of the shirt or she's kept it or what? I don't know. Who knows? But uh, you mentioned the Etihad job earlier, the fact that a lot of fans point to the Etihad as not being as atmospheric as other grounds, you could say, in, in the English game. What do you make of the claims that people are making that, you know, City benefited last season from playing kind of pandemic football, that they were the best suited to that kind of environment where there's no fans the football is maybe more clinical and more dispassionate and that's where they thrive and where Guardiola thrives specifically. Do you think that argument holds water? Or do you think that this season with full stadiums and fans even more emotionally involved in the games than they ever have been because they appreciate it so much? Do you think that will work against City? Or is that a kind of a false characterization?
4: Well, I think the the Premier League title wins of of twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen sort of rubbish that idea that that city are more suited to pandemic football. Um I mean I think it, it's it's true to an extent that I think certain grounds are easier to play at when there's no fans. I think it's probably wasn't an entire coincidence that that city uh, fairly easily dispatched Liverpool at Anfield last season. Of course Liverpool weren't at their best, but I think when you go to places like Anfield and the crowds right on top of you, it's hard to communicate it's, it's a very intimidating atmosphere i think it's a lot easier for any team not just city to um to go to places like that and and get a result when usually they might struggle um but yeah i don't think that city benefited that much from from the pandemic and having empty stadiums i think common to the uh, conscious to the common myth i think the atmosphere in the etihad can actually be quite good um i know it's easy to to do a bit of seat spotting on on Twitter and and whatnot. But, I mean, it looked like it was bouncing on a, on Saturday against Norwich. I mean, and that's no disrespect to Norwich, but that isn't one of the games you'd sort of mark on the calendar as, as uh, where all the fans are going to be really up for it. So, yeah, I think um, it's going to be an interesting year for sure. But I, I expect City will be up there. It'll be uh, up there right at the top. I, I don't think they'll, they'll see a tail off really. From uh, from other clubs and uh, other stadiums being full again, I think it's if if there is a tail off, I think if anything, it will be due to possibly the striker situation. Maybe other teams will suss out the false nine system a bit better, as we saw Chelsea did last season. Unfortunately for us, but I think um, yeah, I I don't think the the claim that City benefited from a pandemic football really holds that much weight. If I'm if I'm being honest. I guess the polar opposite of city in that regard is Liverpool. I mean, it's
0: not spoken about that often, but apparently Anfield actually has a pretty good atmosphere. And um, it's not something they like to go on about at all. It's kind of, it's, it's something just be just talked about sometimes, but, uh, but it was definitely in evidence on Saturday morning when Liverpool beat Narch to our side, not Liverpool beat, um, Jesus, Liverpool beat Burnley 2-0, no, sorry, at Anfield. Um, they've started quite strongly, John, uh, what have you made, made of their start? I mean, Jurgen Klopp doesn't have glasses anymore. It seems to be a bit of a refreshed Liverpool team. The impetus is back behind them with the, the full crowds and stuff. How big a difference do you think having the fans back at the stadium makes to Liverpool's success on the pitch? And how strong do you think they could be this season? Not being t- talked about much as title contenders in comparison to City or to Chelsea. Do you think that they have what it takes to
3: kind of mount an outside bid? Um, Yeah, I think along with City and Chelsea, they're the three teams that will be in the title race, in my opinion. Uh, Liverpool's faith is more in the lap of the gods than City and Chelsea, I think, just because they have... Maybe a lesser squad. I think their first 11 is as good as any, but they probably do have a lesser squad than those two. So, uh, them being in, you know, going deep in a title race will be caveated with whether they can keep key players fit. If they can, I'd be very confident that, you know, they can stay the duration of it and be there, thereabouts, come May. Um, As for the game itself, yeah, it was a continuation of a good start. They weren't sensational, but they were comfortable victors. They were probably maybe at 70. 80% capacity they kind of felt like at times that they kind of drifted through the game but whenever they kind of turned up the intensity a notch uh, they had much too much for Burnley who actually started quite well and uh, I thought Dwight McNeil who was linked to Everton recently was quite impressive but you know once Liverpool kind of established a foothold they had much too much for them a very interesting part of this game was uh, the use of their fullbacks now obviously Andrew Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold have set records for fullbacks for assists in the Premier League but what was interesting about this was the variation in their play. So they were coming infield and they were going outside, and that was shown in their two assists. The first assist was uh, Casa Simica to uh, Diogo Jota, a lovely cross from the left flank, maybe in the manner of a more traditional fullback, you know, hitting the byline and swinging in the cross. Whereas the second goal, which was beautifully crafted for Sadio Mane, included Trent Alexander-Arnold basically giving the assist from an attacking midfield position, very central, which was facilitated by Harry Elliott, playing very wide out in the right-hand side and holding the width. So it was a very interesting variation in their play. And, you know, Alex will be re- will be familiar with this uh, with the inverted wing backs that Manchester City often use. Celtic fans will also be very aware of it because Ange Postecoglou does that there at Celtic Park as well. So it's nice to see Liverpool, you know, have the options to attack teams either inside or outside. So yeah, it was a it w- it was a much deserved win. Um, I think you mentioned the atmosphere in the stadium. I think for a counter pressing team who tried to play with a lot of intensity, I can well imagined that that could really help in terms of, you know, adrenaline and in terms of driving the players on to make that next challenge. So uh, it, it was great to see the fans back. And it was all, it's also strange, but that goal was the first goal Diogo Jota scored in front of a full Liverpool crowd. And likewise, that was Thiago's first appearance at a full Anfield, despite the fact that he's been at the club for over a year. So uh, on so many different levels, it, it, was, uh, it was a nice a- afternoon's work for Liverpool. Um, and I think they'll only be strengthened as certain players such as Fabinho, and I mentioned before, Thiago, come back into the team and establish themselves once again. So uh, it, it's an exciting time, but again, that's predicated on players staying fit, and next weekend against Chelsea will be a much, much more stern test of uh, Liverpool's credentials than, than a Burnley team who are probably going to be where they always are 16th or 17th come the end of the season. You know that I love
0: Thiago Alcantara, um, a Spaniard of Brazilian heritage. Do you think that this season he could be really a game changer for Liverpool? I mean, he's kind of got up to the speed now of the English game. He's fully fit. You know, could this be a season he explodes and shows what he can do and proves a lot of doubters who maybe, you know, dismissed him last year that they're incorrect and that he is a top quality player?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the last ten games of last season, Liverpool won eight and they drew two and they improved they improved levels upon levels. And I'd attribute that to two things. I'd actually add to three things rather. I'd attribute that to actually having a set a settled center half pairing, despite the limitations of Reese Williams and that Phillips. At least it was a bit of certainty in a season of mass uncertainty. Um I'd also give a lot of credit to Fabinho returning to the number six role. He's comfortably Liverpool's best player. In that area and he really kind of copper fastens their defensive resilience by you know patrolling that area in front of the back four and the third thing is Thiago moving to a more uh, a more number eight role to which he was more accustomed to in his career the context of his early inverted commas struggles in the Liverpool jersey was the fact that he was playing much deeper because uh that team was readjusted with Fabinho going into center half so that kind of ruined the rhythm that they had built up so As soon as he kind of moved into a role in the team that he's more accustomed to, I thought he was superb at the back end of the season. And if he can stay fit for the duration of the season, I think up with like Kevin De Bruyne and Kante, he can be one of the most effective uh, midfielders in the Premier League. And, if, if you look at that Liverpool team, I think for a long time people would have said maybe that their only real weakness was they didn't have a lot of craft in midfield. But now you see they have Thiago there who, who I think will be superb. They have Nabi Keita who's always been good for Liverpool. He just hasn't been able to string games together with injuries. So if he can stay fit, that's another great option to have. And then, I mentioned him earlier, but young Harvey Elliott, who's only, he's only just gone 18. And, you know, he's diminutive in stature, but he was playing against the most physical team, possibly in the Premier League. And he stood up to it and he showed all of his technical prowess. So he's a player maybe that can, can see a bit of game time this season as well. So, suddenly it looks like they have a lot of creativity in their midfield, whereas before they might not have. So, yeah, I think that Thiago can be a big factor for Liverpool this season, but it just kind of depends on him staying fit, which, you know, throughout his career, maybe he hasn't had the most unblemished record when it comes to injuries. Very true. I
0: think whatever happens, Liverpool will be there or thereabouts come the end of the season. I don't think we can say the same thing for Arsenal, Jasmine. Um, they had a very poor beginning to the season after losing to Brentford 2-0. They lost to Chelsea 2-0, um, a very strong-looking Chelsea. But before we talk about Arsenal, I want to ask you about Ruchemus and Gladbach, who are your German team. They also had a very bad start to the season. They lost 4-0 to Barley-Leverkusen at the weekend. What's going on? Like, What have you done that's uh, that's cursed your teams to this extent?
2: Hey, I would remind you, Dom, that did pretty good at the weekend, actually. That was the only one they drew 2-2 against Hamburg. Anyway, um, uh, Gladbach, I mean, their first two games have been top six teams. They've got the champions, which they drew 1-1, and it was a great result to get that. I mean, it was, to me, it was kind of predictable because they've been good against Bayern, especially at Borussia (laughs) Park. Um, Leverkusen was a little weirder. Um, it was marred with injuries for Glabach, which kind of made it not great. Um, it was really weird goals they conceded. Uh, Jan Sommer, who everyone saw out really outplay himself during the Euros for Switzerland, um, and also in the last match against Munich, he suddenly completely messes up and the ball goes off his shin in the third minute into the goal to already be 1-0. And then Patrick Schick, who also had a very good Euros, um, doubled their lead before 10 minutes in. And once you get off to that kind of start, it's kind of hard to come back, especially when your best player comes off injured in the 20th minute. Um, Marcus Taram, who's been rumoured with Inter quite heavily in the last few days came off injured and the kind of last 20 minutes we saw in the first games against Bayern Munich was really unlucky to maybe not have a penalty against them because he just absolutely used his pace against Upamecano um when you lose that kind of firepower up front they just kind of fell apart um we kind of, we don't usually see this, but if you're going to get a big uh, result like that out of the way, you want it kind of away a to a tricky team like Leverkusen. Um, Leverkusen have looked a bit weird. They drew with Union Berlin and they are still doubted in their ability to actually make good quality chances. Um, they had loads of possession against Union Berlin when they drew 1-1, but couldn't convert to any sort of shots, so it it was a good it was finally a good week for them to actually show that they do have um, quality up front. They've obviously got Florian Virts who didn't play the whole game. Musa Diaby looked amazing. Patrick Schick is coming onto his own. But if you look at the underlying stats, by Leverkusen had one point nine five, Extreme and Mönchengladbach one point six six. So they had to, they also had suffered further injuries with Matthias Ginter, their centre-back, and also Alison Player, which is another big part of their um, attack. They had uh, left-back Joe Scally, who's really young and really inexperienced, so they really were on their last legs trying to field a more solid team, and it just didn't really work out for them. But that being said, to have that many injuries and still put up a fight, especially s- statistically, it, I think we can only see them go up from here.
0: Very interesting. Just before we go into to Arsenal, I want to ask you about uh, Leipzig. They beat Stuttgart 4-0. Um, Dominik Soblewski. Oh, he Should sh-
2: we try this then? <laughs>
0: Shuboshloy.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's okay. a lot easier Shibosh- than it looks
0: It's easier than pronouncing the football team that plays for (laughs) Cologne. Just go with Cologne, not why they
2: anglicized it. Anglicized it,
0: even. Um, A question from Dieter van Gucht about Shalabloy. How do you pronounce it again?
2: Shabosloy.
0: Shabosloy. A question from Dieter van Gucht about Shabosloy. Is he the best footballer out of Eastern Europe in the last decade? And will he become the best footballer of Hungary since Ferak Pushkas? I know that you're somebody Ooh. who followed been very closely for quite a while. I know that. And I know that you were kind of one of the first to break his move to uh, Leipzig in the first place. What do you think about Dieter's question?
2: Oh, I think it's a great shout. I'm trying to think of how the Eastern European football is. I mean, there's quite a lot. To, and I'm, I don't want to be a, ge- a geography. I don't want to start. I don't want to draw a line where East where the East Europe starts, and guess, but um, I mean, who would you say is the other best, the last best footballer to come out of Eastern Europe? Lewandowski. Lewandowski. I,
3: it, Poland. Poland would be Eastern Europe, surely.
2: Yeah. I, yeah.
3: I I I, would, uh, actually, uh, maybe we'll, we'll skirt,
0: skip this one because I want to start like a, a geographical war. And, like,
2: <laughs> I, I I would say he's probably gonna be it's definitely the biggest chance of being the best Hungarian footballer. Um, I was just checking if Lewandowski was actually born in Poland or born in Germany because, you know, he's been in Germany so long that I've forgotten. Um, would it wouldn't be as I think him and Lewandowski are obviously two different players, so I probably wouldn't I wouldn't compare him, but probably the best striker of Eastern Europe since Dimitar Berbatov maybe?
0: Sure.
2: I mean, again, it's more of a goal scorer, but I, I just it's Eastern, Euro, Eastern European midfielders. I, I would
0: yeah, no, I know mean. It's, it's not easy, I think, as well. Like, goal scorers aren't really appreciated in the same way as creative midfield players are, or something, somebody like Shabosh. Like, do you know what I mean? Like it's kind of <laughs> oh,
2: more enthusiasm
0: or something. I don't know what it is. But,
2: I, but, but I would what, say, I would say the, the kind of uh, The kind of show he put on for Leipzig on uh, Friday night against Stuttgart, he definitely has the quality to become one of those players and probably the best Hungarian player we've seen in a while. Yeah,
0: definitely, was quite a performance. But what do you make of Leipzig this season? I mean, outside of Dortmund and Munich and Bayern Munich, what do you make of that kind of cabal of clubs beneath? I mean, the likes of Gladbach, the likes of Bayer Leverkusen. Who do you fancy this season to kind of, you know, either pressure the big two or kind of take a serious run at it the
2: themselves, you know? Well, my prediction was Leipzig would come second by Munich. And after they lost 1-0 to Mainz, I was kind of I, I was kind of doubting myself, but they didn't start Schubschlei against Mainz. And in the last kind of five-ten minutes, they threw everything at Mainz. Um, in the end, they only had two shots on goal. It was kind of that they somewhere in in between the counter press and playing with possession. Under under Nagelsmann, they became a lot better at possession football, and I felt like going with Jesse Marsh, a very RB branded manager, might like hinder them somewhat to kind of adjust. And we saw that against Mainz. Um but then. Against Stuttgart, they they were so aggressive, and it, it's a testament. And they also had the quality of Chibogloy that I would say, yeah, this is the team to try and take Bayern on. Um, they, there were times in that match where you had Forsberg missing really good shots, Andre Silva and Kunku sometimes as well, like just missing shots, and you're just like, oh, is this gonna happen again? Um, But then, yeah, if you have someone like the quality of Shabodzloy who can score from a 0.02 xG from a free kick from 25 yards out, then that will turn. There are are still some teething problems and you can see it because of that kind of transition period. But if they rely on their individual quality a little bit more and Andre Silva starts getting to his ant Frankfurt self a little bit more, then we'll probably see less of those problems.
0: Okay, very interesting. And Arsenal, I mean, like it wasn't a game they were expecting to win, but it's really not been a good start to the season, has it? I mean, what do you make of the kind of questions being asked of Mikel Arteta, given how much money they spent this, this summer? I mean, do you think that he's under pressure already? Or do you think that there's an acceptance on Arsenal that, you know, they're quite a way off challenging for even the top four at the moment?
2: Yeah, I think... it's a a sorry old state at Arsenal and it it always seems to be. Um, I don't... I've said this time and time and again and I'm just a bit like... I think we've messed up the last few transfer windows. I'm not saying particularly this transfer window has been awful, but I think some of the deals that have been made in the last three years, Emery era in Arteta's first transfer window there has been mistakes and there has been deadwood being brought in we have loads of players but not anyone that sticks out so far um and it's kind of worrying that yeah you're gonna have injuries you're gonna you know it's not always gonna become be this bad you're not gonna have three players out with covid but I would just like to see a change to maybe deal with the fact that four of your first teamers are out or to, to, to try. Um, we saw really good points of Arsenal in Arteta's first season against the bigger clubs. And mainly because even though they looked awful on the pitch, the back three, back five tactic they would use would nullify teams and they would hit on the counter break, counter attack. And that worked. And the stubbornness to not try that ever again is really, really damaging. If there was just a little bit more of a defensive setup, Tierney wouldn't... Against Chelsea, Tierney wouldn't have to feel like he has to protect Mari from Lukaku, leaving that left-white wing just completely open for crosses, completely open to attacks from that left side. Um, You know, and... it it was just a little bit more painful. It's just everything. (laughs) I don't want to sound like a broken record, but everything about Arsenal is pain. Um, It just is. And you have to also be like, I know breakthrough cases of COVID happen, but for those three players to have COVID in the manner of which we do have to start asking questions, are these players vaccinated has everyone been vaccinated? Is there an initi- initiative to be vaccinated to stop this happening? Because we had two players out, that's fine, that will happen. But then suddenly Ben White a week later, which is what COVID is essentially. Um, but yeah, it's the only takeaway that I can have is that we didn't look that bad going forward, if the six shots that we had in the thirty-five possession that we had, if half was on target. And I was <laughs> I was also greatly... It's also, there's just so many weird things going on at Arsenal. It's like going for James Madison for home the season and then deciding, no, we'll stick with Martin Erdegaard, someone that we could have bought before the season started and allowed him to, you know, have some continu- continu- continuity with the team he could have started if that deal was done earlier so it's just a shit show from board to tactics really
4: you want to come in there alex yeah just to just to touch on uh on jasmine's point about um are the arsenal players vaccinated there has seemed to have been in the the last week or so there's been some stories coming out Basically, that a lot of Premier League footballers are actually quite hesitant uh, to get vaccinated. I saw that um, Steve Bruce um, spoke to the Guardian about this uh, at Newcastle. Uh, a couple of his players have been have been quite like fairly seriously ill. I think Carl Darlow, uh, the goalkeeper, spent about a week in hospital over the summer, and uh, he lost two stone in a, in, a, in a few days in hospital, and he's therefore not been able to really train or, or play any part in Newcastle's season so far. And so there does seem to be a bit of a hesitancy from Premier League players and players lower down as well. I know that Middlesbrough have had a bit of an issue with this as well, where they just don't want to get vaccinated. Um, so I don't know if that's obviously it's it's uh, at the moment it's, it's people can choose. So it's it's what do the clubs do? They can they can advise their players to get vaccinated, and a few of the managers like Neil Warnock at, at Middlesbrough have publicly. Um, Encouraged players to get vaccinated, but I guess uh, clubs are stuck in a sticky situation in that sense because they can't force them to. Um, so yeah, it's just it seems to be not 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 necessarily an Arsenal specific issue. But it's a seems to be a wider issue that's only really come into the fore in uh, in the recent weeks. Certainly complex. You wanted to come in there, Jasmine?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I think quite a few people know my brush with COVID in the last few weeks. Um, not me having it, but. The team that I support through connections that the outbreaks that has happened in not only just the club that I follow but um across German football as well there's quite a few init—it's not initiatives per se but some clubs have taken it a lot more seriously than others and I think some clubs also understand that if they're asking their fans to be vaccinated before they come in, we've seen the set Cone, who their first game, they only allowed a 1,000 unvaccinated players come in. Um, and now from game week two, they only will allow vaccinated or recently recovered fans in. And you've got, um, if you ha- go through that kind of thing in your ground, then they probably expect your players to be vaccinated too, otherwise it's hip hypocritical. But we've seen the kind of same things happened. Dortmund have been so strong on the vaccination front. Most of their players, a good ninety-two percent, were vaccinated, and the two that weren't or choose not to um got COVID and have missed out. Uh, we saw mines that it was around eleven players and three coaches some were vaccinated and um, in like, the case I've had to go through was vaccinated too but um yeah we it, we've seen some clubs take a more initiative stance making it their lives it's slightly harder like we've seen in the NFL for instance to get vaccinated and some that haven't really pushed players kind of just said oh it's there you should go you get go. vaccinations we're doing vaccinations this day but that's it and players, as much as I love to give them a lot of them a load of credit, some of them just don't care enough to realise what he actually does.
0: Definitely. It's going to be interesting to see how they manage that as they move into what will hopefully be a post-COVID world in the in the near future. But, uh, but coming back to the football, obviously we mentioned that Arsenal game, they lost to Chelsea. Uh, Romelu Lukaku was phenomenal. You know, he was really you could quite see that he was kind of relishing his moments, you know, being the main man, being the big money signing, the highest paid player at the club, I believe. like He seems to be a different animal completely to the one that left Manchester United for Italy and Inter Milan. I mean, Connor, what what's he done in Italy that's changed him like this? He's spoken about working with Conte and how that's helped him and how he's begun to develop a more, you know, selfless mentality, you could say, in terms of his objective is not individual titles or individual records. It's, league titles you know and he's got that taste winning the Scudetto with Inter last season what is it about him that's changed do you think that's taken him from being a very good but you could say inconsistent and maybe unappreciated striker to being one of if not you know the best and most informed center forwards in the planet right now
1: yeah I think it's a it's a combination of not only his mentality which obviously is is an Antonio Conte thing But also in terms of his physicality, because there was an undiagnosed problem that he had when he was playing in England. And it basically meant that things that he were eating weren't sitting right with him and it had him completely out of shape. Although he didn't look it, if you compare photos of him when he was at Manchester United to photos of him now, since as soon as he arrived at Inter, they they diagnosed this problem and changed his diet to suit it. You can see, just how much better in better nick he is now and it it, it's unbelievable the, the transformation and you still get people who quite clearly haven't watched lukaku kick a ball for the last two years going onto youtube and finding these these compilations of a of bad touches um all wearing an inter shirt but i mean over the course of two years name me a bad or a professional footballer other than probably leo messi who's not had six or seven bad touches and it's his his understanding of of what other players are supposed to be doing as well is is striking to me. So I watched the the first half of that Arsenal Chelsea game at the weekend, and this is Lukaku's debut. And before he scored the goal, I think there's about seven minutes played. Arsenal had a throw in, and Lukaku's turning around, pointing, telling all of his players, "Right, you you're supposed to be here. You're supposed to be here. You're supposed to be here." And I just think that is so reflective of what Conte drilled into him he was the guy on the pitch who led everything whether it was d- defensive work and pressing from the front or organizational stuff and Lukaku's intelligence is something that very often goes overlooked but he's a phenomenal player and, and what a what a bright guy as well and I think under under Thomas Tuchel he's going to just go to even higher highs to be honest I'm so excited to see what Lukaku is going to do. I'm equally devastated that he's not going to be doing it in Serie A anymore because he was a joy to watch. And the the subplot that developed in Milan as well between him and Ibrahimović was, was something else. But in the end, I mean, Lukaku came to Milan for two years, conquered Milan, conquered Italy, beat Ibrahimović, beat Cristiano Ronaldo. And now he's gone back what he would call home to Chelsea. And I think with him there, Chelsea are probably Premier League title favourites now, aren't they? You'd imagine,
0: yeah. Champions League favourites who mm. could even argue. I don't think we've ever seen a team picked apart like Inter were this summer. Um, Their scudetto winning team being ripped apart, it seems. Obviously, Kante leaving, Ashraf Hakimi being poached, Lukaku going. You know, rumours linking Lautaro Martinez also with a move away. They won 4-0 against Genoa on the first day of the season and the first game of Simone Inzaghi's uh, reign. How strong are they still? I mean, like, there's been a narrative about them that this team has been, as I said
1: earlier, kind of ripped apart. But do they still have what it takes to retain their league title, do you think? Last season, if if this Inter side competed in, in Serie A last season, I'd probably say no. This season, I'm really not sure. I do think people have been wildly overreacting on Twitter, believe it or not, based on a 4-0 win over Genoa, because I mean, that old Alex Ferguson thing came into my head during the match, which is, lads, it's Genoa. You you don't need to do all that much to beat them. I think they've visited the San Ciro to face Inter specifically now, seven times without scoring a single goal or taking a single point. And the aggregate score over those last seven visits is 25-0 to Inter. So, you can see the the quality of opponent that they were up against. Um, on top of that, Davide Ballardini is coming to the end of his time. They're just based on his career, specifically at Genoa, where he's been in charge, I think three or four times. He he never coaches a club for more than 40 games. He's already on 27 at Genoa, and he's working under a president who, the last time he sacked him about two years ago, said that he was a useless coach and an idiot, so We see what's happening at Genoa. It's the same cycle all the time, as long as Preziosi's there. But on Inter, it was hard in the first 15 minutes to not get quite excited about it because they were moving the ball very, very quickly. They didn't look like they missed Lukaku and Ashraf Hakimi, but they will because those players dug them out of so many holes last season. And now, okay, you've got Matteo Darmian playing as, as right wing back. He was their hero on a couple of occasions last season. He's not the same player as Hakimi, who's arguably the the best player in his position in Europe. At left-back now, they've got Federico Di Marco, who is, again, like an, an Inter boy. He's come through. He's finally back after some successful loan spells with Parma and, and Verona, and he'll probably do well, but he is not at Hakimi's level. Edin Dzeko, as good as he was against Genoa, again, I have got to say, he was playing against Genoa, and for the last two years at Roma, Dzeko was was not very good. He he turned it on in Europe on occasion, but week in, week out, he looked like a player who was very much past his best. I think that Dzeko could easily score between 10 and 15 goals for Inter this season, a few important ones in big games. But ultimately, that is a downgrade. Um, You saw, I think it was Gabriele Marcotti was saying that all of these positions, they've, they've downgraded. Ezeko's nowhere near Lukaku's level. Chalonoglu's come in, again, was amazing against Genoa, but he's not as good as Christian Eriksen, who's probably, unfortunately, not going to play for Inter again. Simone Inzaghi is, I'd say, the third best or fourth best Italian coach. One of the ones better than him is Antonio Conte, who's gone. And like I mentioned with Hakimi being replaced by Damian or Dumfries now as well has come in. And they're just not at that level. So in any other season, let's say the Inter don't have a chance. Personally, I think they'll be battling to finish in the top four with those six other teams. Everyone's just going to be battling for that first. And then in March and April, we'll have an idea of who's going to be challenging for the title. I don't think Inter will do it, but usually... 80 points in Serie A is enough to to win the title. Last season, Inter got 91, but Milan were second on 79. So 80 points would have won it. In, I think it was 2014-15, Roma finished second with 70 points, which was quite striking. Juve were far and away the champions that season. But generally speaking, it's 80 points. I don't think it's going to be that this season. I think something closer to that 2015 total will be enough for a team to win Serie A this season. So... Are Inter capable of getting seventy points this season? Yeah, probably. Are they capable of getting eighty-five? I'd say absolutely not. So if it plays out like I expect it to this season, where everybody is is below what a usual title winning team would be, then then who knows Inter could do it. But they are quite obviously a worse team than they were last season, however good they looked against Genoa.
0: Atlanta beat Torino 2-1 a from home, Napoli beat Venezia 2-0 at home. I mean, there are two very different clubs. You could say one is perfectly run, one is slightly more chaotic. Um, of the two, who do you feel has the best chance of, you know, kind of really going on a run this season and challenging uh, for the title? And also, how important do you think that Lorenzo Insigne situation could be for, for Napoli? I mean, there's
1: been whispers that he could be leaving. What do you think about that i don't see him leaving this summer uh, i just really don't I, I always maintained over the last few years that the only club in senior would leave napoli for would be barcelona uh, that's obviously an impossibility now there's talks that he might go to inter or someone i just personally i don't see it i don't know how inter could sign him having already signed uh Chalunoglu to play a, a similar enough role there um in terms of who has the better chance between Atalanta and Napoli? I don't want to curse this, but I don't think it's close. I think after right, Atalanta have got to be the, the title favourites this season. They're the only team, along with Milan, in, in the top 10 from last season who didn't change coach. They've got that stability with Gasparini. They've been getting better every single season with Gasparini. And until the final match day of the last two seasons, they've been within a point of second place. So I do think that if Atalanta are going to win the Scudetto, it's going to be this year. Um, And I think they're probably the only team that mightn't see a drop-off in their overall points tallies as well. So I would seriously back them over most teams other than Juve, definitely over Napoli. Although Luciano Spalletti's arrival there is is going to be big. He's got a team there that's that's custom-made to play in his preferred 4-2-3-1 formation. He has all of the pieces, but... I think the the job that he has on his hands to take Napoli from being a Europa League team to champions is, is probably just a little bit too much. Uh, whereas whereas Gasparini's job, if he can negotiate this, this difficult start, Atalanta always starts seasons really badly. And this year they were without five of their usual starting 11 for the opening day deron freuler two of the most important players in the team then there was also zapata was missing obviously he's very important rafa toloy the captain and hans hatterboy is out for three months i think as well if they can get through that i i think by christmas we might be in a position where we're looking at atalanta and thinking that it's their it's their title to lose
0: fantastic and um, certainly going to be an interesting title race mm. in uh in Serie A this season. Maybe not the same situation in France. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain winning 4-2 again on Friday night, beating Brest um, away from home in Brittany, uh, even though they were missing uh, Neymar and Lionel Messi, who were in Barcelona having dinner with Luis Suarez, quite interestingly. Um, what, what do you make of... The league title race this season, John. I mean, it's kind of... There doesn't seem to be a clear challenger for PSG, to be honest with you. They seem to be shipping goals every game they play, but still winning quite comfortably. Uh, nice beat Marseille 1-0 uh, down in the south of France uh, last night, although the game was abandoned when... Uh, the kind of a mass brawl was sparked basically by a fan, a Nice fan who threw a water bottle at Dimitri Payet, Payet threw it back into the crowd, sparking quite a melee Um incredible scenes there. Um, Marseille, like Napoli are quite a dysfunctional club and they don't really seem well suited to challenging PSG this season. You could say, unless maybe if Cristiano Ronaldo decides to leave Juventus for Marseille to, to spark up that kind of, you know, the Messi Ronaldo rivalry again, but this time in France. Um, what do you make of the league on this season John do you feel PSG are too strong to be challenged uh, this year and maybe not strong enough collectively and cohesively to do something in Europe or w- what do you think
3: yeah I don't want to be seen to be thrown out what people might consider a lazy narrative but like there's no way you can look past PSG this season They their squad and their squad depth is just so far in advance of any of their competitors that you know, it, it would take something cataclysmic for them not to win the league. So there's no way I can see anyone outside of them winning it. But there's also another strand to this and the fact that, you know, their competitors have to be consistent. And I don't think they have the capacity to be consistent. Lille have dropped points in the first two match days. Leon, uh, at the weekend blew a 3-0 lead to draw 3 all. So, you know, that's not really the kind of thing that a team that would have aspirations of, you know, retain their title in the case of Lille or challenging in context of Leon would do. So, I genuinely I don't see anybody really laying a glove on them in um, in the in the domestic front. But like I mentioned in previous podcasts, that actually might be a bad thing for their European challenge because you have to be sufficiently ba- uh, battle hardened to win the European Cup. You have to have a really tough domestic slate to be in order for you to be primed and ready for when you know the White half heat of the latter stages of the European Cup come about so I'd be skeptical about whether they have the synergy after so much change so quickly and whether they have the kind of humility in a team full of superstars to kind of sacrifice for the betterment of the team and to really pull together in one common goal but in saying that like domestically I don't think you know I think they're they're peerless I, I just couldn't I couldn't envision a scenario where you know anyone would uh, anyone would touch them. I know what happened last season, and it happened previously with Monaco. But I think they were anomalies, and it'll revert to type this year. PSG will win quite comfortably, and like you mentioned, they've won their first two games four two, but that's despite the fact that they're you know they're missing several players, and they're still probably having teething problems in how to you know integrate all of these players into this same team. I'm sure like as much as he's the best player ever, uh Pacertino hadn't planned on or expected to get Messi and now all of a sudden he's got him, he might have to kind of readjust the team somewhat to find a place that will suit him perfectly. so I'm sure when um when all of those things get worked out, they'll go from strength to strength and be even more impressive in the league but uh I think I think no nobody will will, will touch them domestically, but also I think a lot of those other teams really need to improve. You see the likes of Marseille. They've they've spent a lot this summer. They've kind of pushed the boat out somewhat, but uh, yeah, still undermined by the kind of you know just the craziness that always engulfs that club. Uh, I think one, <laughs> I think really something that kind of typifies that was uh <laughs> was one of the was one of their, uh one of their backroom staff coming on and punching one of the fans and then like moonwalking backwards to try and avoid any kind of uh, any kind of a comeback. So. <laughs> They, are another club really that uh, that wouldn't be, would wouldn't be too well run.
0: Yeah, chaos. We mentioned Neymar and Messi. Another player who wasn't playing yesterday was Sergio Ramos. Who, as you said earlier, you know you're talking about humility. I don't think he's the kind of character you would associate with such virtues. Although he has many of them, he's a hardened winner, and I think that he will bring an edge to. PSG that they haven't had in recent years in the competitive drive and a winning know-how as well. I mean, with Neymar and, i mean, sorry, with Lionel Messi and Sergio Ramos, you've eight European Cups between them. So it's quite a pedigree to, to inherit, you know. Um, and it's going to be fascinating to see how it works out. Uh, what's it like in, in Spain, Alex? I mean, the, the reaction to this post-Ramos, post-Messi era. I mean, you've arguably two of the biggest personalities to have played in La Liga in this millennium. I've um, gone in the same summer, the captain of Real Madrid and the captain of Barcelona, leaving on free transfers for the same club. Um, it sparked quite a, you know, a crisis of identity, you could say, in Spanish football um, and in Spanish football Twitter as well, you could say. Um, how do you think the league has adapted to losing such such megastars?
4: I mean, yeah, it's been a it's been a slightly strange start to to La Liga in the in the first uh, in game week one last weekend. It was almost like nothing had happened. Barcelona were were pretty comfortable at home against Real Sociedad. Real Madrid impressed away at Alaves, uh, and and then and then this weekend, Real Madrid have uh, played last night and they drew three three with Levante. They they looked like they really missed Sergio Ramos's uh, presence in defence. They were pretty much all over the shop in the second half. Uh, shipping goals left, right, and center, and in Barcelona, they really struggled at Athletic Club on a, on Saturday night. It looked like it was the kind of game where they just needed Messi to come and sort of save the day, as he often has done. In fact, last season it was it was away at Athletic Club where they uh, went behind early on, and Messi scored a double uh, in the set, uh, later on in the game to to rescue the win for them. So, I think it's I think there was a lot of pessimism going into the season with uh, in La Liga with the obviously, as you say, two huge players. Missing this year, or both leaving on uh, on free transfers in in Messi and Ramos, but it's a real opportunity for Atletico Madrid. I feel they've got two wins in the first two games. Typically not spectacular uh, in a in typical Atletico fashion. Just how uh, Diego Simeone likes it. But um, yeah, it's it's been a strange sort of start. It looked like Barca and Real Madrid were going to be okay, and then this weekend they clearly missed their former talisman. So. Yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see how it pans out for sure, yeah.
0: Sevilla playing this evening against Hitafe in Getafe. Um, I think it's definitely a four-horse title race, you could say. Sevilla acquired Rafa Mir um, this past week from from Huesca. I uh, Sorry, from Wolves. He was a nono huesca last season. He scored 16 goals in La Liga for one of the worst teams in the division. I think he's a very interesting acquisition. And I know you've tweeted about it as well. You think that Atletico... Uh, kind of maybe missed the boat by not signing him and instead pursuing Matthias Cunha, who I'll ask Jasmine about in a second, because I know that she watches him closely, but just coming back to Sevilla and the title race. I mean, do you think that they have what it takes to pose a challenge this year, a genuine challenge? I mean, they did last season until the bitter end. And you could argue that aside from Atletico, Barca and Madrid are much weaker than they were last season. Um, you know there was a fifteen point gap between Sevilla and Real Sociedad last year between fourth and fifth. I think people are you know bigging up Villarreal more than they should be to be honest with you, given they finished seventh last season. Um, I think the top four will will will, will remain the top four in in La Liga this season. But do you think that Sevilla have what it takes to push for the title? And do you think that it's goes to lose? Really, I mean they're they are the strongest team in the league. It seems they still have that kind of great Diego Simeone sprinting on the tunnel after the final whistle against Elche. Um, you know, the potential of acquisition of Matthias Cunha around the corner, Rodrigo De Paul was absolutely balling um on his debut, you know, some beautiful lofted high balls. Um, how do you
4: see the title race in Spain panning out this year? I mean, I think it's I think it's Atleticos to lose, to be honest. I think there has been uh some worries, perhaps, that not adding another number nine, another striker uh would perhaps they'll they'll uh lean too heavily on Luis Suarez like they did last season. But I mean and if Angel Carreas can keep up his uh his current form, then that looks like it's not going to be an issue. There was obviously he had a decent season last season, but he did seem to lack some of the uh sort of killer instinct perhaps that the likes of Luis Suarez would have. Um, but he's scored three goals already in two games. So I think in terms of goal scoring, they seem to have found a solution without actually spending any money on a striker. I think if they bring in Cunha, I think that would be a good addition. But I think it is really uh, Atletico Madrid's title to lose. I think this could be a, a great opportunity for them to do what they failed to do in 2015, where they couldn't retain their title then. I think... As you say, Rodrigo De Paul has looked fantastic. Got a a great assist um, against Elche. I think that's a it's a really good signing. It's the kind of player they needed to kind of link the the midfield with the attack, which was apart from uh, Marcos Llorente last season. That was an area that they perhaps struggled with sometimes. So I think Atletico Madrid should be the favourites. I don't subscribe to this idea that that both Real Madrid and Barcelona are just suddenly going to have uh, catastrophic seasons. Yes, they've lost incredibly important players. Yes, Barcelona have lost arguably the best player of all time. However, I think Bar- both of them have shown in, the, in their opening games that they have more than enough firepower still. They have more than enough quality in the midfield to definitely to, to win enough games to put them in the title race. But I think it is Atletico's to lose. They have a better squad. They have a more defined style of play, which Simeone has taken from his past style of plays and he's made it a bit more attacking. A couple of seasons ago, it didn't really work out, but he seems to have found that formula now where they can be just as solid as they ever have been, but score more goals, be better in attack, be more entertaining. Uh, and just touching on Sevilla, like you mentioned, I think, yes, they do have enough to, to launch a title bid. And I think if they're going to do it, they have to do it this season obviously with Real Madrid not being as strong as they usually are. They've got Real Madrid, as I said before, they, they were with shipping goals like crazy in the in the game last night. David Alaba is a great acquisition, but he's only one one member of the back four. When you've got uh, Eder Militao and Nacho not really forming the this, this strong partnership that perhaps they need, then there's only so much that Alaba can do. And I think also with Barcelona, they looked incredibly vulnerable against Inyaki Williams on Saturday um, in Bilbao. Eric Garcia didn't have a good game. Um, I think, obviously, there is Gerard Piquet has picked up another injury. Apparently, it's not so bad this time. he will keep him out about two weeks, but he's clearly not the reliable uh, centre-back that he used to be. So I think both teams defensively aren't going to be quite what they should be. It'll be interesting to see how Barcelona get on in attack in a in a strange sort of way. Last season, when uh, Lionel Messi was was absent through injury or suspension, Barcelona actually looked quite good in attack. Perhaps the likes of Griezmann, uh, Philippe, Philippe Coutinho, uh, Usman Dembele, when he's back from injury, might maybe feel a bit less pressure, might have a bit more freedom to to do what they want to do rather than uh, fitting in with what Messi wants. But I think. Sevilla should see this as an excellent opportunity to go for it. As he touched on before, they've brought in Rafa Mir, who I think could add that extra striping, striking option that they they lacked last season. They were very reliant on uh, Youssef and Naziri in the second half of last season. And as brilliant as he is, he's not, perhaps he lacks some of the experience that other top strikers have at the very top level in Spain. He's not always completely reliable, he can go missing at times. But yeah, I think Rafa Mir could be an important player down the line. Obviously, they've got uh, Oscar Rodriguez is uh, actually starting tonight against Hedafé uh, and he's been great. He didn't play much last season, but he's, he was he was uh, really good in their last game. They've got the likes of Papu Gomez, who's had a bit of time to, to settle. Obviously, he came in halfway through last season. It's never easy to do that. So now he's had a full preseason. To prepare, so he should be uh, he should be one to keep an eye on, and obviously you got the likes of Lucas Campos, Haytus Navas, uh, and, and those guys who we know how good they are. And I think it's another it's another year under Hula and uh, belt. He knows this Sevilla team very well now. Obviously they won the Europa League a year ago. I think if there is a time where Sevilla are at their peak and perhaps some of their title challenges aren't really at theirs, I think it's now. And I think. Sevilla Sevilla fans will that they won't go in expecting to win the league. I don't think when you play in the same division as Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Atletico Madrid, you're never going to go into a season expecting expecting a title. But I think they will at the back of their minds they'll be thinking, you know what, this is the year we've we've got to really go for it. If we don't do it this year, next season Barcelona might be stronger, Real Madrid might have sorted their defense out. So I think it's it's not now or never of course it's not but it's a really good opportunity having said that I think Atleti are favourites
0: yeah definitely it's going to be an interesting to race in Spain as well Jasmine I don't know if to go quickly I just want to ask you um, your thoughts on Matthias Cunha possible acquisition um, of him going to Atletico Madrid, how do you think he'd fit into the system under Simeone? And do you think that he'd be able to challenge Suarez for a starting role or would he be purely be kind of a backup striker?
2: I think he will be a backup striker. I know we've talked about this um, a little bit when it was first surfaced. Um, I think he's a great talent. He's 22. He's the closest thing to Neymar that you're going to get. Um, I think he's been a bit unlucky in Germany, especially at Leipzig. I think he needed a bit more time. um, But he's done well for Herter considering what Herter is. He's um, one-to-one attacking is great. He presses really well. Um, He's fast. He's good at decision-making after dribbling. Um, And the only problem that I have is where he'd fit in the back five. he's normally really, He normally fits in a back four structure, and I'm not sure where exactly Simeone will play him in a back five. Um, that's my only concern with him. I really wanted him for Arsenal. I know Leeds were really, really trying for him, but it was probably just a bit too expensive for him. But yeah, I think he's a great talent and could probably do really well in La Liga.
0: Yeah, big fan of our Brazilian footballer, so I'd love to see him there personally. Um before you go, Jasmine, can you mention your socials so people can check you out after?
2: Yep, on Twitter I'm at Jasmine underscore bh one. And yeah, I should have more things coming um that way soon on there. So yeah, keep an eye out.
0: Fantastic. Thanks a million, Jasmine. Thank I'll you. talk to you next week. See ya. Um, you mentioned uh, Papu Gomez there, Alex, in passing. Um, Connor, I know that Papu is somebody that you are a fan of. Like, I mean, my Spanish team will be Sevilla. That's what my sympathies lie. So I'm a huge fan of him. And I also have a big thing for Argentines. So um, I'm really hoping that this season he could break through. I think he can. I think that, you know, it's always difficult adapting to a league midway through a season like he did when he came in from Atlanta last last winter. And also, I know he hadn't played that much football in the first half of the season, but I think that this season he can be a pivotal player
1: for uh, for Sevilla. What what does Papu mean to you, Connor? I've been um, fighting back tears since I heard he was first mentioned about ten minutes ago. To be honest, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Papu's is remarkable, and I, I do think there were there were some signs of of that at the end of the last season with Sevilla. But if he can settle in into this into this team fully, I mean, he, he could have a serious case at being the best player in, in La Liga this season because what he did with, with Atalanta was was remarkable. I mean it's almost beyond description to be honest. He he was the pillar of this team who, who went from fighting relegation to to going one 0 up against PSG in the Champions League quarterfinals. Yeah and you know he was he was so key to absolutely everything they did. And when he when he left Atalanta, I mean, it's no secret that I'm an Atalanta fan. It's the most emotional I think I have ever felt about anything related to football in my life. It, it was like it was worse than a, a breakup. You know, the, the feelings I felt afterwards for days and for weeks were were horrible, but I'm still not quite over it. Especially with the the recent comments from both Papu and Gasparini showing that there's still a little bit of um of needle there between the two, unfortunately. But yeah, I'm I'm very much hopeful that that Papu can do something with Sevilla. I was delighted to see Argentina win the Copa America because of him and because of Messi, and I'd be very very happy if he went on to win the to win La Liga in in Seville as well.
0: Absolutely. Um, What's your take on La Liga this season, John, from the outside? Do you think that uh, Atletico are the team to beat, or do you think that there could be an outside challenge?
3: I think, yeah, I think Atletico are the team to beat. I, I think they'll retain it as things stand. I mean, there was lots of talk of whether Sal Niguez would leave, but it looks like he mightn't, so if he stays, and they can add Cunha to that, I think they've, really, they've replenished their squad without really you know, stripping things back and making it harder for the players to gel together. So I think they're the most stable base. Um, I think also Simeone is a better manager than That That counts for a lot as well, I think. Barcelona have their own issues. I wouldn't imagine that the players' morale is massively high, despite, you know, they've had two decent results in their first two games against, you know, quite good teams. But uh, if, if it were to if I were to compare Barcelona and Atletico Madrid, I'd much rather be an Atletico Madrid shoes. Um Real Madrid, they still feel like they're very, very reliant on Karim Benzema for goals. So outside of him, despite Vinicius Jr. playing well last night with two beautiful finishes, I don't think they have a plentiful source of goals. So to rely on just one person over the course of a thirty-eight game season, I don't think I don't think it's really fertile ground for, for a title. So I would still have a Madrid as favourites over them as well. Obviously, a lot could change in the context of Real Madrid in the final two weeks of the transfer window. I wouldn't say that about Barcelona because they're obviously so ca- cash-strapped. So, you know, uh, Real Madrid could strengthen their arm between now and then. But if you were to ask me right now who I think will win the title, I would say it would be a Madrid. They have the solid defense. And in Cunha, they're adding a bit of flair and pace, something that you could say sometimes they miss. If you look at last season, some players improved, I would say, exponentially. Llorente, you know, in terms of the goals he scored, was absolutely superb. Yannick Carrasco kind of reminded me of the player that I thought he would become after he came through at Monaco. He this rangy winger with a lot of pace and dynamism. And then he maybe didn't quite hit his straps like you would have predicted, and he went to China, but now he looks resurgent. He was also impressive, although in a different role, at the Euros. So I think they have a lot going for them. Rodrigo De Paul is one of the best players in Serie A in terms of uh, progressing the ball. And so it'll be interesting to see what they do with him, whether they play him in a central role or whether they play him you know, off the flank, maybe cutting in off the left-hand side if Simeone reverts back to his four four two shape. So I think they've added well to an already strong base. And hopefully, you know, Correa can step up and Cunha can step up to supplement Suarez because at times last season, particularly towards the end, it felt like he was carrying the attacking can too much. And, you know, he was nearly held together by bits of sellotape. He he didn't always look the fittest, but his eye for goal and determination really papered over those physical cracks. So, uh, yeah, I think they're definitely best placed to win it. Uh, Other clubs have done decent business, like uh, Sevilla, for example, they haven't had any real big name departures. Some people say that Jules Koundé is still a target for Chelsea. So it'll be interesting to see if that happens and how they reinvest it. But in Rafa Mir, who, is a, who who is a good player, like Alex alluded to, and I think in Eric Lamele, who who is a sturdy and solid player who I think will, will suit La Liga, I think they've uh, made some kind of cute acquisition, So I'd expect them to be around the top four, but not necessarily challenged for the title. So... Like you said as well, I would agree with that. I think the top four will remain the same. Maybe the configuration will change somewhat, but Alessandro Madrid, in my opinion, will be top of the streak on the end of the season.
0: Yeah, I think that seems to be the most likely scenario, although, you know, things do happen. It's going to be interesting to see how things develop. Gonzalo Montiel, uh, an Argentine, signed from River Plate, uh, right back for Sevilla, and was presented this week. And um, when he was presented, it was funny because uh, all the Argentine contingent, Eric Lamela. Lucas Ocampos, Papu Gomez, uh, they all basically met him at the Sanchez and gave him a tour and stuff. It was very funny, you know, the Argentinians always band together, it seems. Uh, you mentioned De Paul there. I know that they signed him from Udinese, as uh, you alluded to, John. What, what, what do you make of him, Connor? and how good do you think he can be? He was obviously very impressive during the Copa America, um, assisting Angel de Maria in the final against Brazil and Rio de Janeiro. Um, how good do you think he can be and can he be a real upgrade on
1: what Atletico had in midfield last season? He can if he keeps his head. And I, I've always had this real doubt with him that he's he's very hot-headed and he tends to let that get in the way of things sometimes. But in terms of when he's staying calm and he's on the ball, yeah, he's phenomenal. He The numbers he was putting up with Udinese as well, it's important to remember that he was doing that with one of the most dire teams that have played in Serie A over the last what six seven years, however long he was there, and I do expect that with with Simeone in charge, he's going to be kept. I'm not sure if under wraps is the is the right term to use, but he knows that if he does something stupid, there is going to be pretty bad consequences once he gets back into the dressing room. So I'd expect the pal to have a big big impact at, at Atletico Madrid, yeah. It, he, the chances he can create we saw last season with atletico that very very often towards the end of the season when they were just trying to get over the line they just weren't creating the same chances that they have been creating early on and they were almost trying to to force their way through with with the and the team those chances will come and with with suarez ahead of them they'll probably be put away so i'd expect them to have a very very good time there you mentioned
0: Udinese. Uh, they drew 2-0 with Juventus in the opening day of the Serie A season. Um, I want to finish off on that. Um, obviously, the headlines before the game was Cristiano Ronaldo. He didn't start. He asked to be benched because he's considering his future. Apparently, he wants to find a solution in the market before it closes at the end of this week. Um, or then, sorry, maybe through next week. Um, he came on, as John mentioned earlier, scored what he thought was a winning goal, ripped off his shirt in typical Cristiano style, and for the or to threw it out, so it was quite a comical moment. You know, what seemed to be kind of a you know a classic Cristiano against the odds, riding off, you know all that kind of thing. Um, what's the story there? I mean, like obviously he released a much publicized letter mm. on Instagram last week shooting down talk about a reunion with Real Madrid that uh, supposedly wasn't going to happen. Um, Do you think he'll leave Juve? And if so, where is he going to go? Because it's kind of hard to find a home for him at the moment. No,
1: exactly. And I think that ultimately will be what decides it. I think he wants to leave. I think Juventus would probably be quite happy if he left in terms of it would get, what, 30 million a year off their salary list and Allegri would be able to create a more coherent team there as well Ronaldo clearly doesn't want to be there there were rumors at the end of last season that as he departed he kind of said all right lads I'm off I'll see you again probably on opposing teams he told his Juve teammates he he was leaving there were all of these Instagram posts about him like packing all of his cars into a big truck and, and getting them taken away yeah, from totally Turin and yeah I think it's quite clear that he doesn't want to be there anymore um Juve are a better team without him as well however however much Juve fans will say otherwise they quite clearly are you saw that in the first half against Udinese in particular Paulo Dybala was actually allowed to to be himself and to play the way he wants to play and he was he was brilliant but ultimately I think Cristiano Ronaldo is unfortunately going to stay with Juventus for another year and he'll score some goals against Udinese Genoa Sampdoria and take his shirt off and, and celebrate in his in his usual manner but I, I think as long as he's at Juve he's going to to continue to to hold them back ever so slightly
0: the battle was captain too right which is unusual yeah. because he's like one of those players who I who, 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 who I think was a child even though he's he's a man at this point he's older than me like but he just has that youthful kind of lost boy quality to him doesn't he mm-hmm. like but uh but where do you think he Ronaldo could go if he did leave? I mean, what's the word in Italy? Where where do you think he can go? I mean, Madrid have been ruled out, like PSG. You can't imagine going there, and Mbappe was to leave, yeah. and that
1: doesn't seem to be the case uh, this summer. So who does that leave? Do you I don't think it leaves anyone, to be quite frank, which is why I just don't see it happening. All of the talk in Italy was that there was there were links with with PSG at the beginning of the summer. More of the focus, which was being cited back to Spain and from spain sometimes being cited back to italy was there were talks of a manchester united return a sporting return but sporting was was never going to happen this summer realistically united was was possibly more more likely but obviously that's not happening now some people bring up manchester city's name don't quite understand that i think it's just because they they follow the the path of money and and who could possibly pay them, but especially with PSG having signed Messi, I do not see anywhere in Europe that, that Cristiano Ronaldo could go. And I don't think he has any desire to to leave Europe just yet either. So for that reason, I don't see him leaving Juventus. And it's not through a, wa- a lack of wanting on anyone's part.
0: Yeah, I think he's on, as you said, 30 million euro net. But because the Italian tax mm. system other country that would be 60 million gross, which is an astronomical figure for a player of his age. And I think that, yeah, I mean, obviously the furor over Messi's rival at PSG would have definitely gotten under his skin. I don't care what anybody says. He's definitely annoyed by that. He's definitely feeling mm. jealous and feeling envious. So I don't think he'd countenance leaving Europe, as you said, and going into semi-retirement in the US uh, at this moment in time, you know. Yeah, I think it'd be too too much of a blow for his ego. But, uh, but yeah, that's all we have time for this week, guys. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, can I get your socials, each of you, so people can follow you after the episode is over? Uh, i us start with you, uh, John.
3: So yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at NotoriousJOS. Perfect.
4: Alex? Uh, yeah, I'm at Alex underscore Brotherton on Twitter fantastic and connor you're now
0: infamous uh twitter account as jasmine alluded to earlier yeah i'm uh, well, at
1: con at Conjay clancy for now we'll see how much longer i get before they ban me again for no reason
0: <laughs> perfect thanks a million guys i really appreciate it and fascinating week of football um and there's more to come so enjoy i hope you enjoyed the podcast, guys if you did, please share it and enjoy the week's football and we'll see you next week